Susan Elder, and welcome to the JSGC Policy Podcast. Today, we're having the second part of our conversation with Brent McClintock, the Executive Director at LDPC, or Legislative Data Processing Center. In our last episode with Brent, we talked about some of the services and training that LDP offers. So if you haven't listened, please take a moment and get caught up with our conversation. Now that you've done that, let's get back into it. Can you give us a sense of what kind of impact or effect the COVID-19 pandemic had on LDPC? So it was a wild ride, wasn't it? I know LDP is not alone in that. You know, everyone's world changed uh, overnight. You know, we went from wondering what was going to happen in early March of 2020 to all of a sudden everybody's working from home and we've never worked from home before, at least in our office. And so it was a difficult time for us because uh, not only were we dealing with the sort of day-to-day changes within our own office of what does that mean to work remotely and, and to get that work done, but we were fielding an enormous amount of requests from the offices that we support and from the House and the Senate because we went from a historically a, a organization, the legislature that did not really work remotely uh, that often to overnight a organization that worked entirely remotely, at least for a short period of time. And it was tough to keep up with. I feel like all our eyes turned towards you and we said, we need to be at home help us, help us work out of our house, make it so. Right. Yeah. God bless you and yours, Brent, for helping us, enabling us to all work out of our houses when we, we had to. I just want to throw in, I I was working from home and I had the, one of the office laptops and it it crashed. I was having problems. So I I talked to um, Mike Fox on your staff. He he's, he was our regular LDP guy. Shout out to Mike. He's been with us for years. Yeah. We have to do a shout out to Mike Fox in this. Like, we love Mike Fox. Go Mike Fox. Absolutely. Mike's the best. He is the best. So I I talked to Mike. We actually met in a parking lot. I live in Lancaster. He was in Harrisburg. We met in a parking lot in a hotel near Elizabethtown, and we exchanged the laptop. The handoff. It was like spies or something. So he could take it back and work on it. And then bring it back to me. So it's just a little, you know, COVID-19 story of working with LDP in an actual real sense. <laughs> Those first couple of days at Glenn, there were a lot of stories like that where uh, we, my guys would meet in parking lots and work on laptops on the hoods of cars. It was not a position we ever thought we'd be in. You know, the first couple of days, we really scrambled to get the offices we directly support up to speed so that we could get everybody up and working remotely. It took us a couple of days to get out to everybody and get things set up. You know, that was something that, again, the team was really proud of because that networking team was able to, to provide that service and get that out. And, you know, some of the more challenging things are the things that you just never saw coming. Like that, for instance, was, well, uh, let's get the team together and let's figure out how we're going to do this, even though we've never really done this before. You know, the other way that the pandemic really affected us, I would say, outside of just remote access and things like that. Many of the other offices, LDP is not alone, but the legislature had created decades of procedure and workflow that relied on in-person transactions. And so now this legislative process that relied on a piece of paper being carried 
up two flights of stairs to a second office to receive a stamp to be carried to three other offices couldn't happen. And so again, overnight, we just fielded, I can't even put a number to it, a massive number of workflow change requests on how can we continue to do this, but remotely and electronically. And maintaining that security or integrity or whatever aspect was required of it. Right. So, you know, again, we doubled down and worked to create electronic workflows for a lot of those. I'd say Zoom is a great example of that process because when the state shut down and everyone stayed home, the Senate had called us and said, we need to continue legislative operations in the chamber for session, but we need to use Zoom. Do you know, or teleconferencing, do you know anything about that? And at the time we had used Zoom like everyone else, almost never. So we got the team together and within five days, we're able to look at different options, prototype a system, uh, get it up and running in the Senate chamber. And then within, like I said, five days, I think it was a Thursday that they came to us and asked the question. And I think Tuesday was the first legislative session. And so we were really happy, really proud of that. Pennsylvania was the first state to continue legislative operations in the nation and uh, the Senate by, you know, really pushing ahead and pioneering that Zoom technology uh, in the chamber, you know, that was an exciting project and something we were happy to provide. It's not something that we did alone. I need to make sure that that's said out loud. Uh, there were a lot of offices that we worked with co uh, collaboratively, the different Senate IT teams, the Senate video team and the Senate chief clerk's office really did some magic there to get the AV to work in that Senate chamber in a hybrid fashion. But, you know, overnight, uh, the, the pandemic sort of required us to respond. And, you know, I'm really blessed to work with a, a group of people in my office that are able to sort of rise to the challenge and figure out what needs to happen and, and sort of dive into the deep end when we have to. I imagine some of it might be temporary as people are coming back to physical spaces, but do you foresee any permanent changes coming out of the pandemic? I think the pandemic and this whole process has really forced people to revisit how they're doing things and why. And I think a lot of times the legislature is probably not alone in this, but a lot of times things happen because that's the way they've always happened. And the pandemic really forced many people to question those assumptions and see if there's a more efficient way to make that happen. And so some of these electronic workflows or, you know, the ability for, you know, work from home on a permanent basis in a hybrid fashion, you know, I think has really started some good conversations on how to increase some of these efficiencies and things like that. And we've seen electronic systems be used more heavily, the use of mobile applications and teleconferencing technology to, you know, bring in guests, for example, committee meetings. It used to be a, a long process for somebody from Erie to come in to testify at a hearing. And, uh, you know, not everyone can make a, a five hour drive and, and sit in on a, a long committee hearing. And, you know, the use of teleconferencing, for example, to allow them to participate remotely uh, in the redistricting process, we saw a huge influx in citizen participation because they were able to uh, teleconference in and participate in these hearings from all over the state. And so people were able to have their voice heard and to speak up for their local municipality in a way that, you know, outside of Zoom and, and teleconferencing, they likely many would not have been able to do. And so I, I see things like that being, 
I think items that will continue because there's just such a huge benefit for everybody involved. Talking about um, changes in workflow and new processes then leads to the question about security and keeping all those new workflows safe. Can you speak about the demands of, of cybersecurity? Because uh, I know in Joint State, we did a report some years ago about cybersecurity in the Commonwealth. So what are your thoughts about it today, 2022? What are the demands of cybersecurity now? The impact of you know, cybersecurity and cyber attacks on everyone's lives is really hard to fathom. You know, looking at some research just in 2020 alone. So if we just isolate it down to one year, 350% increase in malware attacks, a 630% increase in malicious activity. I mean, those numbers are mind boggling to, to see that level of, of attacks happening. I saw some statistics that said that every minute Cybercrime costs around $3 million. Um, it's, it's just uh, hard to understand. Another stat that I saw that was really interesting was that the average cyber attack isn't detected for around 280 days, and that the average cyber attack costs around $4 million. These are just huge numbers to deal with, and local and state governments have been really impacted by this. We've seen a, a huge increase across the nation in the attacks on local and state governments. And unfortunately, that has a lot to do with how staff are stretched so thin and the demands on legislative staff uh, you know, continue to increase in their day-to-day -day work. So they have all of that to handle, uh, plus you know, the limited funding. Uh, cybersecurity is very expensive. And then for each uh, organization to have to provide their own infrastructure and cybersecurity needs, you know, the, the cost is really expensive. And unfortunately, sometimes with, with tightening budgets and things like that, it's one of the things that falls uh, maybe lower on a priority list. And then unfortunately, these types of attacks tend to happen. So it's, it's something that we have seen a real increase in. Uh, nationwide and is a, a real concern, something everybody should really be concerned about. Do you have any quick security advice for state workers out there who might be listening? We do. And that's a great question. Like I said, we've tried to modernize our operation and adapt to the changing technology landscape and cybersecurity, we really feel like is the next uh, iteration of that. And so actually within the last few months, we've brought on a new staff person to our team that focuses solely on cybersecurity. And we see that as being a really important thing because uh, like you said, that's Brian, that's something that every employee really has to be responsible for and, and really uh, be cognizant of. And so you know, we've started to communicate different tips uh, for cybersecurity and, and to make different employees aware. Uh, as far as our clients, you know, a couple tips that we would point you to. One is to every organization should assume that they're going to be hit by a cyber attack. We can no longer uh, assume that we won't. And so it's a good conversation for every organization to have in regards to how they're handling their own data, uh, how they're uh, approaching cybersecurity, uh, what they would do if they were hit with a cyber attack, because, you know, those, those conversations lead to good planning, good awareness, you know, backups are extremely important. Ransomware is, you know, for anyone who's, who's not familiar, you know, ransomware would be an attack where they've encrypted all of your machines and they want you to pay a certain fee in order to unlock that data. One, never pay that fee. It does not guarantee that your data is going to be unencrypted. Oftentimes it is not, uh, and you lose it. And this is why backups are critical. Having um, numerous backups, backups off 
site and offline are critical to making sure that you can uh, resume operations after an attack. And that doesn't happen without planning. So backups are really critical. And really the most important thing that we talk to people about is, you know, many people assume that cybersecurity is a technology issue. It's something that maybe a computer can solve and protect you, right? I'm going to put on this cybersecurity blanket and it's going to keep me safe. And that's actually uh, partially true, right? Technology can assist with that, but really the most effective tool in someone's cybersecurity uh, arsenal uh, or tool belt really is the human factor. And so, you know, every employee really needs to be skeptical and, and highly aware of what's going on. You know, phishing and, uh, you know, direct email attacks is by far uh, the most effective way for an attack to happen. And unfortunately, we sit in front of our computers with Outlook open nonstop, and it's like an open door uh, to cyber criminals. And so, you know, for every employee to be aware of different phishing attacks, different ways that they try to trick you or, or get into your systems, uh, to be aware of those and to say something. Anytime you see something that looks a little bit suspicious, you want to talk to people and, and sort of double check that. It's no longer um, uh, anything that anyone should be ashamed of to say, this doesn't look right. Can somebody look at this for me? And oftentimes that's the best way to stop a, a cyber attack is just employee awareness. Okay. I just have to ask, why is having Outlook open an open door? So uh, the old way of looking at cybersecurity was that we've got these firewalls that are going to protect us, right? And so that the idea is that we're going to have this sort of fence around the outside of our technology, and that's going to keep everybody out, which is partially true. But uh, Outlook, for example, email is this open door where it's just sitting there and anyone in the world can send you a message and can say, hey, Susan, Here's, here's a link, click on this. I'm, I'm a safe guy, I'm a nice guy. Uh, you, you can really trust me, click on this link. And as soon as you do that, you know they're talking to you, you're talking to them. And that is how these types of things really get into our systems, where that's a file that they've attached that looks like a PDF, but really isn't. Uh, whether that's a link that looks like it's uh, to your Microsoft account, but it really is not, and you're giving them your password. That uh, you know, Outlook and email is really it's it's a necessity. We can't we can't take email away from people, but it really is an open door to the world, and it just blasts right through that fence that historically would have been seen as a very safe perimeter, and really is not anymore. Susan, I have an example of a phishing attempt someone tried to use on our office two years ago. I got this email from Susan that was saying, oh, I'm just over in the conference room and I'd appreciate it if you'd send over some information quick. And and that seemed reasonable, except for we were working from home. There's no reason you'd be in the conference room. So I quickly texted you and of course, you had no idea what was happening. And those attacks are very uh, personalized and very specific. So people think phishing is really the uh, African prince email that you get that offers you millions of dollars. Often these phishing attacks are highly uh, crafted, looking at LinkedIn profiles, looking at your own website, looking at you know different public records where they know who your boss is. 
and they can mimic the boss. Uh, they can make it look like their email signature. The, an email will come in. Oftentimes, one of the red flags is if, if something is requesting something in a hurry or urgent or uh, anything related to finances. You know, if your boss is asking you to buy gift cards, that is probably not something that usually happens and you should probably start asking some questions, but people are trying their best to, to uh, you know, work hard and, and do everything that they can. And if they see an email from what looks like their boss with an urgent heading and they wanna try to follow that, you're right, Brian, you know, the, they'll oftentimes respond without realizing this may not be quite right. It's time to clarify rather than move quickly with haste. That's right. You know, I was surprised to learn that LDPC plays a role in Pennsylvania's redistricting process. Can you tell us more about that? We do. And it's something that many people are are surprised to find out. So since 1980, LDPC has been involved with the redistricting process. The executive director of LDPC is usually appointed as the legislative liaison to the U.S. Census Bureau. And what that means is that our office works alongside the caucuses and the Legislative Reapportionment Commission to prepare the data set that's used as the basis for the map drawing efforts. LDP is uniquely positioned for that in our bipartisan nature to be able to navigate that process and to do it in a, in a bipartisan way. For the 2020 process that just finished within the last, uh, I believe it finished in February of 2022, uh, we started that back in 2016. So it's a long process. It's years long of coordinating with the Census Bureau, receiving data and and refining that with each county in Pennsylvania, going out to the different local municipalities and getting updated geography. There isn't a central resource for mapping in the state uh, like there are in some other states. And so it is our job to sort of go out starting in 2016 and moving up through 2020 to work with the different counties to pull together that statewide mapping resource. And then that is sent off to the Census Bureau. And that uh, is used by their department to go out and do the canvassing, to pull in the populations and the, those numbers. And then that feeds into back into the geography. And so that population along with the updated geography is used as the base for the map drawing efforts Now, at that point, LDP really steps back. Uh, We work to create the base for the redistricting efforts. Uh, We prepare the data set. We present it to the commission to certify it. At that point, we really take a backseat role. And the different entities at that point would actually draw the lines and things like that. But we, at that point, are more IT support for websites, uh, for operational technologies and things like that. Do you do that all within existing staff when you're reaching out to municipalities and that type of thing? Or do you bring additional people on to do that? We actually use a vendor. Each decade, we contract with a vendor that does the GIS expertise. We do not have GIS expertise in our office. And that helps us maintain neutrality in that we couldn't help with mapping even if we wanted to. And so uh, by contracting with a vendor to handle the GIS expertise, we're able to take a coordination role uh, and also sort of a data analysis role. We'll receive the data from the vendor 
and then we'll review it to make sure that it's accurate, things of that nature. But the, the actual canvassing to the counties and things like that's really done by a vendor this decade. We were able to work with the Penn State Data Center based here in, in uh, Middletown, uh, who did a, a fantastic job, really, really great office to work with. This concludes our discussion with Brent McClintock, the Executive Director of LDPC. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the link to our website in the show notes, where you can also find previous episodes on a variety of policy topics and interviews with other legislative service agencies. The music in our podcast is provided by Joseph McDade. Thanks for listening.